The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash QZB860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Seizing the Day with BTK Inhibitors in CLL, Evidence-Informed Therapy Selection, Safety, and Sequential Care. I'm Dr. Nicole Amana from New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center here in New York. I'm pleased to welcome my colleague, Dr. Jennifer Woyak from The Ohio State University. So just as an introduction, obviously, as I said, this symposium is BTK inhibitor focused. So just to review the BTK inhibitor FDA approvals in CLL and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, as you can see, Abrutinib being the first to market, which was approved in 2013, has approval in CLL, mantle cell, marginal zone, and Waldenstrom's. Shortly thereafter, acalabrutinib became approved, and it's approved in CLL as well as mantle cell lymphoma in second-line therapy. And then xanabrutinib, um, obviously lots of data coming out in xanabrutinib, soon to be approved in CLL, but it's approved in mantle cell lymphoma and second-line therapy, and also just recently Waldenstrom's as well. And then uh, shift, shifting focus a little bit on no, non-covalent BTK inhibitors, um, this is just the, the one furthest along in development is pertubrutinib, and we'll talk about that later in this session as well. So just to remind everybody about the NCCN guidelines, in patients with treatment-naive CLL that meet indications for treatment, you can see regardless of age, or comorbidities, whether they're frail or have no comorbidities, and in patients with mutated TP53 or deletion 17P, you can see acalabrutinib and abrutinib are approved as category one agents to use in treatment-naive setting. You could also see venetoclax and abinutuzumab, also category one. But I think it's just important, important to note that chemoimmunotherapy is not a category one recommendation in any case, and yet we see still lots of usage of chemoimmunotherapy in our patients, and in some of the real-world retrospective data, about 40% of patients who are unmutated IgHV still receive chemoimmunotherapy despite decreased efficacy, and we'll show you some of that data. In the relapse refractory setting, also NCCN guidelines, again, regardless of age or comorbidities, again, in patients with high-risk features such as TP53 and deletion 17P, again, a calibrutinib or brutinib, category 1, venetoclax or tuximab, category 1 as well. And as I mentioned, when we talk about the different BTK inhibitors, uh, of course, the irreversible covalent BTK inhibitors, both abrutinib and the second generation, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib, um, obviously there are differences in uh, potential off-target effects that we see with these agents, and we're going to highlight some of the safety data as well during the symposium. And then, as I said, there are other non-covalent BTK inhibitors that are in development, pertubrutinib being furthest along, but you could see that Obviously, given some more of the off-target effects that uh, abrutinib, for example, may have, this contributes possibly to more of the toxicity events that we see um, with abrutinib when you compare them to other more selective agents. And again, we're going to go over some of this data. Um, and as notable, we're going to talk about the BTK class and the adverse events that are associated with the BTK, BTK class that many of us are familiar with. And again, some of the um, off-target effects with um, tech and EGFR are responsible for some of these adverse events that we see with the BTK class. 
So today's agenda is going to focus on evidence for the use of BTK inhibitors as standard of care in CLL. So we'll talk about some of the key clinical trial data. And then we're going to switch again to talk about case-based discussions and how to put this evidence to work when we manage a variety of different CLL patients, whether it be with comorbidities or uh, prognostic markers um, or adverse, adverse events. So just to move forward, I'm going to hand this over to Dr. Woyak. Thanks, Dr. Lamana. Um, so I'll start with a, a short uh, few slides looking at some of the data we have for BTK inhibitors in CLL. So as Dr. Lamana mentioned, there are two BTK inhibitors that are approved in CLL, um, ibrutinib and acalabrutinib. And then we also have quite a bit of accumulating data for the other second generation covalent inhibitor, xanabrutinib. We're gonna go through a number of these clinical trials, especially the ones that are furthest along. Um, but just to show you on this slide, that for each of the drugs that is FDA approved, we have a number of phase three trials that are showing efficacy in either treatment naive, relapsed refractory CLL. So starting with our treatment naive CLL data, um, the, obviously ibrutinib was the first to be approved in this disease. And as such, we have the longest follow-up from the clinical trials of this drug in CLL. Uh, recently, we saw a seven-year follow-up data from the Resonate 2 trial, which led to the FDA approval of ibrutinib in the frontline setting. This study took patients who were over the age of 65 and randomized them to ibrutinib versus chlorine B cell. And we can see sustained progression-free survival advantage to ibrutinib over chlorine B cell, as well as overall survival. Um, benefit was similar for all risk groups, um, including mutated and unmutated IGHV. And we've seen at uh, over six years of follow-up, about 61% of patients remain in remission after treatment with ibrutinib. So Elevate TN, um, switching to acalabrutinib, this was the phase three study that led to the FDA approval of acalabrutinib with or without the CD20 antibody obinutuzumab in frontline CLL. And here we have four-year follow-up data. Um, so again, this was a study, um, primarily older patients who were randomized to clarambicil plus obinutuzumab, acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab, or acalabrutinib alone. And we can see at four years, only 20%, 25% of the patients treated with clarambicil obinutuzumab remain in remission, 78% of those treated with acalabrutinib alone, and 87% of those treated with acalabrutinib plus obinutuzumab. Now, um, this study was designed to actually compare acalabrutinib plus abinutuzumab to clarambicil plus abinutuzumab as the primary endpoint, and a key secondary endpoint was acalabrutinib alone versus clarambicil plus abinutuzumab. Um, all comparisons of acalabrutinib versus acalabrutinib plus abinutuzumab are in a post hoc exploratory manner. So although it looks like there is a potential advantage to acalabrutinib plus abinutuzumab, the data is not quite as clear as it looks from the progression-free survival curves. And as well, across the phase three studies that have been performed, BTK inhibitors show clinical benefits in patients with TP53 mutated or 17P deleted CLL. So anything that disrupts the TP53 gene. Um, here we have some of the uh, phase three trials of ibrutinib, the Alliance and Illuminate study. Um, Alliance was bendamustine rituximab versus ibrutinib alone versus ibrutinib rituximab in older patients. 
um, and 24-month progression-free survival for ibrutinib-treated patients was 75%. Uh, Illuminate was ibrutinib plus obinutuzumab versus clarimbezazole plus obinutuzumab, um, and the median progression-free survival for those patients with TP53 alterations was not yet reached. Elevate TN also included patients um, who had TB53 abnormalities and 24-month progression-free survival was 95% for those patients who were treated with a calibrutinib plus abinutuzumab. Um, and this was similar to those patients who did not have TB53 abnormalities. Now, moving into a couple of the relapsed refractory studies. So this is the phase three resonate trial, which led to the initial FDA approval of ibrutinib and relapsed refractory CLL. Um, we can see in, in this population, ibrutinib has a median progression-free survival of 44 months, median overall survival of 67 months. Um, and progression-free survival obviously is much superior for ibrutinib versus ofatumumab. And then the phase three ascend study um, led to the FDA approval of acalabrutinib and the relapsed refractory setting. And this was acalabrutinib versus either bendamustine rituximab or idololisabrituximab. Um, the idololisabrituximab and bendamustine rituximab arms were similar with a median PFS of 16.8 months, um, median PFS not yet reached with acalabrutinib. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Lamana to talk more about safety. Thank you, Jennifer, for presenting some of that data. And I think it really sets the stage for why BTK inhibitors have done so well in the treatment of our CLL patients, whether it be if they have an unmutated IGHV or a TP53 uh, disruption. I think clearly the data is very strong and we now have some really nice long-term follow-up. So in general, when we talk about the safety data with BTK inhibitors, we're obviously, as a class, there have been many common toxicities that many of us are familiar with that we deal with with the BTK inhibitors. And common toxicities include the cardiac toxicities such as atrial fibrillation, arthralgias, infection, although we're used to dealing with infections in our CL uh, patients, um, whether it be in frontline or in the relapse setting, some GI toxicities such as diarrhea, hypertension, and then some bleeding issues, although mostly, thankfully, minor bleeding issues. But there's also some other toxicities that patient experience, some dermatologic changes such as pitting in the nails. Fatigue can be an issue um, on, uh, with some of our patients if, if we don't think that they're fatigued due to other reasons or due to the disease or something else. Sometimes this can be uh, debilitating and cause um, an, a reason to stop therapy or dose reduction. And then the cardiac toxicities are not all atrial fibrillation. There can be rare ventricular arrhythmia events as well. And then cytopenia sometimes happen, particularly neutropenia and some thrombocytopenia that sometimes require dose reduction or holding. And again, you have for BTK safety, um, there is download. Remember the practice aid um, is uh, able to be downloaded uh, for this topic and other topics just to remind you. So in terms of some of the adverse events that we see with um, a from some of the landmark studies, here is a slide just looking at some of the more key Resonate, Resonate 2, Illuminate, Alliance, and ECOG. So these are all abrutinib-based studies. And you can see the adverse events that we were talking about with the BTK inhibitors in general, arthragias, AFib, hemologic, hypertension, bleeding, hemorrhage, and infection. And the D superscript just reminds you that these are grade greater than three or higher. So you can see the percentages with regards to some of the abrutinib-based trials um, noted here. 
And then subsequently, these are some of the trials with the second generation BTK inhibitors, acalabrutinib and xanabrutinib. And you can see on the whole, uh, superscript D, so grade three or higher, just to call your attention, appears on the whole to be decreased. Uh, again, non-comparative studies, but just to compare to abrutinib, which was first to market. So when we talk about some of the safety monitoring approaches with some of these adverse events that we see with patients with BTK inhibitors, when we talk about um, anticoagulation, we try not to uh, administer warfarin uh, concomitantly with the BTK inhibitors. And this in part was from some of the original abrutinib-based studies that had um, some notably on patients who were on warfarin, um, they, they had some uh, uh, hemorrhage. And so that CNS hemorrhage, and so that was uh, notable. Um, if somebody develops atrial fibrillation, we would try to consider non-warfarin anticoagulation. And of course, for those patients who develop atrial fi fibrillation, you know, manage the, the cardiac arrhythmia appropriately with a cardiologist, treat appropriately. There are medication interactions that need to be taken to, into consideration as well with the BTK inhibitors. Hypertension, given that our patient population generally is older, some patients have hypertension pre-existing prior to starting a BTK inhibitor. And certainly you wanna pool in, whether it be their general practitioner, their internist, or cardiologists, whoever's um, managing um, and monitoring their hypertension. Obviously, if their drugs need to be tweaked accordingly um, during therapy, that would be important, obviously, to keep on top of hypertension. Um, and of course, when we discuss bleeding issues, uh, certainly the majority of this is minor petechiae and bruising, but certainly you wanna counsel your patients because they, they might be rightfully concerned about this and, and certainly that doesn't necessitate stoppage of the therapy, uh, but you wanna counsel them. And if they're having any elective surgical procedures, you're gonna counsel them about when to stop their BTK inhibitor accordingly. Arthralgias can be a little bit more challenging. Um, most of the time, if it's during initial uh, startage of therapy, usually this can wane uh, over time. However, there are some people where this can be certainly um, limiting, um, and we've tried lots of different supportive care mechanisms, um, whether it be an anti-inflammatory agent, sometimes a brief course of corticosteroids or other, but certainly those drugs may have issues in and of themselves uh, because they might have bleeding potential, affect renal function, so on and so forth. So you have to, uh, it's something that you have to try to manage uh, supportively and some patients unfortunately might need some dose reductions holding or change of therapy and we'll talk about that. And of course, monitoring for infections and secondary malignancies, this uh, again is part and parcel, I think what, what, we, what we normally do with CLL patients, but again, some of the trials initially with abrutinib noted some atypical infections and, and fungal infections. So we do need to keep an eye on infections and of course screening for secondary malignancies. And then just to shift a little bit because acalabrutinib has a slightly different um, uh, one of the adverse events that we see initially with initiating a calibrutinib can be dealt with with headaches. Uh, and certainly this is usually something that is not typically something that's dose limiting um, and can be usually resolves quite quickly in a matter of a week, a couple of weeks to a month or two after initiating therapy and can be usually managed with acetaminophen and caffeine intake. Um, it is rare to have somebody stop therapy due to headaches. Uh, and another, uh, we know that there can be some myelosuppression, as I noted with the BTK inhibitors, uh, more particularly neutropenia with xanabrutinib. So this just needs to be kept in mind. Again, sometimes you can see some neutropenia or thrombocytopenia with BTK inhibitors, and you might need to dose reduced or use growth factor uh, support depending. So I'm gonna switch to Jennifer to talk about some of the head-to-head -head data. Thanks, Nicole. 
Um, so one of the th pieces of data that's been most exciting this year has been two head-to-head -head studies of second-generation BTK inhibitors versus ibrutinib. Um, both of these studies were performed in the relapsed refractory CLL setting. Um, so the first one of these is the Elevate RR study. Um, so this study randomized patients with high-risk relapsed refractory CLL, and high-risk was defined as deletion 17P or deletion 11Q, even though now we know that deletion 11Q isn't a high-risk marker with BTK inhibitors. We did not know that at the time that the study was started. Um, so uh, patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to the two different treatment regimens. Uh, with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. And this was actually designed as a non-inferiority study for acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib. Secondary endpoints were looking at a number of toxicities that were looked at in a hierarchical manner, including atrial fibrillation, infection, rectus transformation, and then overall survival. So the primary endpoint of non-inferiority of acalabrutinib to ibrutinib was met, and you can see these Kaplan-Meier curves are completely superimposable, suggesting that the efficacy of these two agents is the same or fairly similar. Importantly, though, they did see um, evidence of lower toxicity um, pretty much across the board with acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib. We'll go through some of the most important ones in particular. So atrial fibrillation or flutter was significantly lower with acalabrutinib than ibrutinib. So 9.4% for those patients treated with acalabrutinib versus 16% for those treated with ibrutinib. Um, this is probably even a little bit higher with acalabrutinib than we all expected to see. Um, one of the things is there were patients who went on to the study that had um, a history of atrial fibrillation. And when you take into account the patients who are having a first episode of atrial fibrillation, it actually was a little bit more. Um, more difference between these two drugs. Um, and in the acalabrutinib arm, none of the episodes of AFib led to discontinuation, whereas it did 17% of the time with ibrutinib. It's hard to know whether that was just investigator discretion though. We also saw that hypertension was significantly lower with acalabrutinib, 9.4% uh, any grade versus 23.2% any grade with ibrutinib. Uh, bleeding events, including both bruising and major bleeding events, um, was also lower with acalabrutinib, 38% versus 51%. Notably, though, this was primarily a difference seen in low-grade bruising, so major bleeding events were fairly similar between the two arms. We also didn't see a difference in the rate of infection uh, between acalabrutinib and ibrutinib. Um, pneumonitis was low in both arms, potentially a little bit lower with acalabrutinib numerically, 2.6% versus 6.5%. Um, secondary primary malignancies were 9% with acalabrutinib, 7.6% with ibrutinib. And then we um, saw the, that these toxicities that tend to continue to occur over time um, that can be usually low grade, but uh, difficult to tolerate if somebody is taking a drug for years and years, things like diarrhea and arthralgia. Um, diarrhea did seem to be uh, quite a bit lower with ibrutinib, I'm sorry, with acalabrutinib than ibrutinib. Arthralgia also early on was lower with a calibrutinib than ibrutinib. It looks like the curves kind of cross when you look at later time points. So not a lot of patients there. And I would argue that um, most of the patients on the study probably had some episode of arthralgia, whether it's drug related or not during four plus years of follow-up. 
Um, the other study that looked at head-to-head BTK inhibitors um, was the Alpine trial. And this was a study of Xanabrutinib versus Ibrutinib, again, relapsed refractory CLL. Um, and the primary endpoint of this study was a little bit different. It was overall response rate, looking for non-inferiority or superiority of Xanabrutinib. Secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, um, duration of response, overall survival, and safety. So the results of the study so far showed that there was a superior overall response rate of xanabrutinib versus ibrutinib. This is primarily due to a lower rate of PRLs or PR with lymphocytosis um, during the time that uh, the data was uh, collected for. Um, it's really important to note that this is a very early study. Um, so you see it the uh, x-axis of these um, Kaplan-Meier curves, where on most of the other ones we've been looking at, we're kind of measuring in the order of years, up to five years at the bottom. Here, the longest follow-up is 18 months, and that's only for a few patients. Um, so the 12-month progression-free survival, 12-month event-free survival was 95% with xanabrutinib versus 84% with ibrutinib. Meeting their criteria for a progression-free survival advantage for xanabrutinib versus ibrutinib, um, but it'll be really important to see how these data look over the long term, whether this difference is maintained um, or whether with longer follow-up they get closer together. And as well, um, this study also showed lower rates of atrial fibrillation with xanabrutinib compared with ibrutinib. Um, the incidence was 2.5% with xanabrutinib compared with 10.1% with ibrutinib, again, with fairly limited follow-up. Um, so I'll turn it back over to Nicole to talk about um, some of the sequential approaches with BTK inhibitors. Thanks, Jennifer. So I think we have some now more randomized data really showing that the second generation BTK appear to have less side effects than abrutinib, uh, you know, although statistically significantly different seem to be atrial fibrillation, the cardiac issues, but we'll see over time, but it seems like a decreased frequency overall of some of the other adverse events that we see with this class. And it'll be nice to see over time uh, whether or not the uh, response rate with xanabrutinib versus abrutinib hold up over time, as you noted. So looking at sequential approaches with BTK inhibitors, we have some uh, retrospective data, you know, we call this real world data, but just look at this as large data sets, uh, again, retrospective um, to evaluate large number of, of patients who have been treated predominantly with abrutinib being the first to market. And we have a very large series by the US um, and a very large series by the Danish as well. And so over time, it was noted that many of the reasons that patients discontinued BTK uh, or abrutinib-based therapy really had to do not so much necessarily with progressive disease, but many of them had to do with some of these adverse events that we just discussed. And you could see here about half of the reasons for discontinuation were due to adverse events. And the majority of those being usually in the first year, six months of therapy. Now, besides adverse events um, that we're dealing with and trying to learn how to manage, another reason that with long-term follow-up, um, as Jennifer noted, now we have patients who have been on BTK inhibitors four, six, seven, eight years um, from some of the initial studies, and now we're starting to see resistance develop in some of these individuals. And actually, Jennifer presented this data several times, um, looking at some of the resistant mutations that we're uh, now uh, being able to identify in patients on abrutinib or BTK inhibitors. So the most common being 
a BTKC481S mutation. Um, others can have a PLC gamma 2 mutation. Some people have one or either of these or both of these, and a small subset of patients may have neither of these. Um, but certainly we're now able to identify serum resistant mutations that patients are developing on covalent BTK inhibitors. One of the studies that um, there have been several studies looking at um, patients who are intolerant to abrutinib. And again, rem remember, most of this data is in the setting that abrutinib was first to market and then came the second generation BTK inhibitors. And so we have several studies looking at, well, if patients are intolerant to a BTK inhibitor, can they be transitioned on to another a second generation BTK inhibitor, i.e. a calabrutinib and xanabrutinib? Um, and this is a nice study uh, presented by the Ohio State Group looking at the use of a calabrutinib in patients uh, who became intolerant or had an adverse event on abrutinib. And you can see here that they've maintained their response to therapy, which I think is very important. So again, patients are intolerant and not resistant, um, but you can see for the patients who developed some sort of imbrutinib intolerance, um, that uh, you can see here that when they were transitioned onto a calabrutinib, that many of them had a lower grade or a few had the same grade, none had a higher grade of the adverse event that they experienced when they were on a brutinib. So just some data suggesting that patients who develop an adverse event that you could still maximize the potential of a BTK inhibitor and they can be transitioned to another BTK inhibitor such as a calabrutinib. And similarly, we have data, although a little bit more immature, regarding xanabrutinib in patients who developed an intolerance either to abrutinib or, uh, or even a calabrutinib. And you could see here that the majority of patients um, had, did not have their adverse event reoccur when they were rechallenged with xanabrutinib. Um, some recurred, but at lower grade um, compared to their prior BTK inhibitor. So again, some data that will suggest that you can still maximize the efficacy um, of the class, even if they have an intolerance. Um, and, and certainly I think that's really important to try to do so when we think about our patients long-term. And then of course, switching gears to non-covalent BTK inhibitors. And, and here is pertubrutinib or uh, formerly LOXO305. Here's a non-covalent BTK inhibitor that doesn't bind to C481S and can overcome some of the BTK resistant mutations that are developing in the patients on covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, and this was a uh, nice data that was presented at ASH and more recently at the more recent Congresses looking at pertubrutinib in CLL. And you can see in this patient population that many of them had discontinued for progression. Some of them had discontinued for toxicity, but in terms of progression, um, the prior BTK resistance was more in more than half of the patients on this study. Some of them even had prior BCL2 inhibitor-based therapy with venetoclax. And yet you can see the overall response in this sort of uh, BTK resistant, perhaps even BCL2 resistant patient population was about 60%. Again, young data, but encouraging to note that we might have another agent that we can use for patients who are having progression and developing resistant mutations on a covalent BTK inhibitor. Here are the side effects uh, of pertubrutinib. Again, encouraging to see that not any uh, any new side effects due to the BTK class overall, similar adverse events that we see with BTK inhibitors, but mostly grade one, grade two, um, very few grade three, grade four events. So encouraging, you know, more immature data, but um, very encouraging data with a decreased frequency of the adverse events that we typically see with BTK inhibitors. And then I think it's important to note that obviously for abrutinib, 
uh, and BTK inhibitors. For patients who are become refractory, obviously we have some uh, new exciting data with the co non-covalent BTK inhibitors such as pertubrutinib, but certainly I think most of our um, data really stems from the use of venetoclax in this setting. And so obviously we didn't have this, many of the second generation or even um, uh, uh, the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, but when patients became refractory to ibrutinib, are, uh, we have much more data that's mature with the use of venetoclax in this setting. And so here's one of the original studies looking at a very heavily pretreated patient population. A median number of prior, for, prior therapies was four. And in this heavily pretreated group, patients who receive venetoclax, you can see an overall response in this setting was 70%. Now, what we have now is, you know, obviously emerging data with how to use these drugs. Um, and certainly um, post-venetoclax use, um, what about patients who might receive venetoclax in the frontline setting? And if they're BTK naive, um, can then upon relapse, can you challenge them or treat them with a BTK inhibitor? And this is data that suggests that you certainly can do so. Uh, I think we have other data such as the Murano study as well um, that also solidifies this type of data where certainly if you're BTK naive um, and you've received venetoclax and need therapy, you can see you have durable responses here on the left hand side. Um, certainly, however, let's say that you've been already um, BTK exposed. And so you already have resistance to a BTK inhibitor. And I, I think that here the data suggests that using a BTK inhibitor um, is, is not as, uh, uh, not as well uh, in, this, in this setting and so not as effective. And so we would look to an alternative class or an alternative agent to do so to salvage these patients who might have developed BTK resistance. So as I noted, the Murano study came after some of that initial work that was shown with venetoclax um, in heavily pretreated patients. And so this is the use of venetoclax and rituximab um, versus bendamustine rituximab in previously treated CLL patients. And certainly, I think obviously we have now about five years cumulative data with this study, which is very nice. And so certainly patients who were previously treated can go on to receive time-limited therapy with venetoclax rituximab, which is two years in duration, and do very, very well. I think we have some nice follow-up. So then what happens after that? So if patients um, then relapse, and we do have some patients that now have started to relapse after um, stopping therapy with venetoclax and rituximab and then being observed, and then eventually having progressive disease. So in that situation, you can see here when we talk about subsequent therapies, uh, a, a proportion of them who were on the ven rituximab arm, about 27%, um, went on to receive a BTK inhibitor. And then of those in the bendamustine rituximab arm, which were more patients who eventually went on to progress, uh, 59%. You know, if they went on to a BTK inhibitor-based therapy, the responses you can see are on the right-hand side. So again, um, those who um, went on to therapy did very well with BTK inhibitor-based therapy um, if they were, whether they were in the Ven Retux arm or the Benamustine Rituximab arm. So I think it's encouraging to note that depending upon how, what therapy somebody might has had of prior therapy, that you can certainly sequence these agents in different ways, uh, one after the other or vice versa. So I think in preparation, because we're going to now talk about some specific cases, 
um, and utilize all this information and data that we just presented. Obviously, we know that BTK inhibitors are very effective therapies, whether it be a single agents or in combination with monoclonal CD20 antibodies. Um, uh, Jennifer showed some nice data with obinutuzumab, uh, and we'll talk about this in some of the cases. Second generation BTK inhibitors uh, appear to be equally effective as a brutinib. And again, Jennifer showed that head-to-head -head data comparison um, with more favorable safety profiles. And then optimal sequencing of BTK inhibitors and BCL2 inhibitors is not entirely clear in the sense that we obviously have very good data uh, as BTK inhibitors are used up front. And then we also have the CL14 data with venetoclaxobinutuzumab, which is also frontline therapy for our older patients with CLL. And that also has been very effective therapy as well. Um, we've shown data that you can sequence. If you haven't had one, you can go to the other and vice versa. So at least now we have emergent data that you can safely go from one to the other. Um, but uh, you know whether one preferentially should be started before another, we still remain to be seen. Uh, and then we'll get more data with that with future clinical trials. So let's talk about, so we're gonna, uh, again, sort of switch our discussion more to using cases um, and uh, looking at uh, principles for safe and effective management. So let's talk about um, Nathan, because we're gonna talk about Nathan a lot and, and talk about him in different ways. Uh, so here is Nathan, he is 73 years old. Uh, here, his white count is 245, his hemoglobin is 10.8, and his platelet count is 72,000, so some mild anemia and thrombocytopenia. He has some lymphadenopathy, uh, abdominal lymphadenopathy max of about 4 centimeters and some splenomegaly. ECOG performance status 0 to 1, his creatinine clearance is 53. He has hypertension that is well controlled. He has an unmutated IgHV. He does not have a TP53 mutation or a deletion 17P. So when we think about treating Nathan uh, in his current characteristics that we have here, um, what are potential options of therapy? Would it be a single agent BTK inhibitor? If so, which one, a brutinib or a calibrutinib? Could we give him fixed duration venetoclaxobinutuzumab? Is chemoimmunotherapy still even an option for this patient? Jennifer, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you and I are gonna bounce off these cases together. What do you think about Nathan? So I think this is kind of our prototypical CLL patient that we see who needs um, therapy. So a little bit older, um, unmutated IGHV, no TP53 abnormalities, and good performance status. Um, I think this is the by far the longest conversation that we have with patients in clinic, um, and it gets longer by the day as we have more and more options available. So I think you know the short answer is almost any therapy is appropriate for Nathan, in my opinion. Um, so it, certainly he would do really well with a single agent BTK inhibitor. We just saw all of that data with both ibrutinib and acalibrutinib in this setting. Um, he also is really the type of patient who was on the CLL-14 study uh, where we saw the advantage to venetoclax plus obenetizumab. To me, it comes down a lot to looking at safety of these uh, agents and kind of the pros and cons of the administration schedules um, because he doesn't really have any contraindications to either of those targeted therapy paradigms. I would say he is not a good candidate for chemoimmunotherapy, um, especially having unmutated IGHV. We know from many, many studies now that targeted therapies are better than chemoimmunotherapy for these type of patients. How would you treat him? No, fair enough. I think that is absolutely the exact way I would approach this as well. And you're right, the conversations go indefinitely much longer. 
Uh, I think, we, you know, we always talking about, you know, to at least start when you have this many options, whether they prefer fixed duration versus chronic continuous monotherapy. And then after you kind of have their sense of what their preference would be from that end, then you can decide if it's one BTK inhibitor over another, um, you know, whether it's once a day, twice a day or other particular issues about side effects or so on and so forth. So um, just to summarize for sure. I think we said that multiple options could absolutely be considered for Nathan, given his characteristics in this particular case. Um, and we both agree, I think no role for chemoimmunotherapy, given the data that we have with unmutated IGHV in some of the randomized studies with regards to chemoimmunotherapy versus novel agents in this scenario. And here and are some, think, of, oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I do think, um, you know, everybody's practice is a little bit different and you kind of approach that like fixed duration versus continuous discussion a little bit differently. Um, you know, to me, the way that I always approach it with patients is, you know, with a continuous BTK inhibitor, you're going to have to be on it for an unknown amount of time. You know, we have to at least entertain the possibility that you could be on it the rest of your life. Hopefully that won't be the case because we may have other options in the future that could limit it. But right now that has to be the plan, but it's really easy to start. So it's just going to get mailed to your house. You need to come for your clinic visits. There's no infusions. There's no hospitalizations. Um, and then the alternative to that, you have this fixed duration therapy. So after a year you're done, um, but it is quite a bit more labor intensive upfront. And I think also just the status of the world makes a difference. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think especially in the times of uh, the pandemic, it's a lot, it is appealing for patients to do the continuous BTK inhibitor where they don't have to come for the infusions. You can actually do some of your visits via telemedicine. Um, and, you know, I think that those are really patient-friendly options right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going to get to this because I know that this was one of the uh, posed questions that we received. Certainly, I think depending upon where you are and what your setting is with regards to COVID, you might amend these recommendations accordingly. Remember, sometimes uh, be given the risk uh, features like this patient has a Nathan has a white count of 245. Um, so depending, you might be admitting them if you're just uh, choosing fixed duration, you might admit them for their, you know, for their then ramp up or for the, their first obinutuzumab depending. And so, you know, those kind of considerations of hospital admission, COVID circumstances may change what you might recommend to the patient, or you're going to certainly have a full discussion about those potential uh, challenges. And certainly we know that uh, even though much appeal for fixed duration, for sure. Um, there is more labor intensive or more work. And so depending upon the patient, their ability to get back and forth, ease of uh, monitoring their tumor lysis may also influence their decision or your decision together, uh, depending upon those circumstances. So absolutely, Jennifer, completely agreed. So some of the data just to support Nathan under these circumstances, right, well-controlled hypertension, um, were some of the data with the abrutinib from the Alliance trial, the Elevate-TN for calabrutinib, and then again, CLL-14 with venetoclaxobinutuzumab. So let's go on to case two. All right, so let's change it just a little bit. Um, so Nathan's still 73 years of age. His blood counts are all the same, still has a maximum four centimeter lymph nodes and a good performance status. Um, this time he still has hypertension, unmutated IGHV. However, now he has a TP53 mutation on NGS. Um, so Nicole, how would that change your discussion and how you might counsel him in first line therapy? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'm much more comfortable in this circumstance, obviously recommending a BTK inhibitor as chronic continuous therapy. It's not to say that the fixed duration therapy with venetoclaxobinutuzumab isn't a potential option, um, but we have less data, less mature data, not as robust data in this setting with patients with TP53 mutation. So I typically will recommend a BTK inhibitor in this setting until we have more data. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, as we're getting more long-term follow-up data with the BDK inhibitors, um, though in the relapse setting, patients with 17P deletion and TB53 mutations seem to do worse. Um, in the frontline setting, there doesn't appear to be a lot of difference in outcome, whether patients have a TP53 abnormality or not, which is really interesting and probably says something about the biology of the disease at that point. But, um, and that's in contrast with venetoclax Oban, where we really don't have a lot of data that 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 combination is as effective as what we expect to see with the BTK inhibitors there. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, obviously no role for chemoimmunotherapy for somebody with a TB53 abnormality. Um, oh, and then, yeah, so a good question here is, would you consider adding a CD20 antibody? Um, if you're going to use a BTK inhibitor alone, I think it's really tempting to do that. You know, you think adding another drug to somebody with high-risk disease is going to be beneficial. Um, although the follow-up we have so far in the Elevate TN study for the patients with TP53 abnormalities, the PFS is actually identical, whether they're on um, OBIN in combination with a calibrutinib or a calibrutinib alone, which is different than like the, the whole trial population. So it, it doesn't seem that adding a CD20 antibody is going to be beneficial in those patients. Um, again, supporting evidence, um, we talked about this a little bit before, but Alliance and Illuminate both included patients um, with 17P deletion or TB53 mutation, and outcomes were fairly similar to those patients without those abnormalities. Elevate TN as well looked like things were fairly similar in terms of the short-term PFS for those patients with TB53 abnormalities. So I'll turn it back over to you um, for the next case. Yep. Uh, and we could talk a little bit, of course, when we talk about the CD20 monoclonal antibodies with the BTK inhibitors, of course, it seemed that studies, you know, our bigger studies, the randomization of IR versus I versus BR, right? So the Alliance study or MD Anderson data, it didn't appear that rituximab added much to abrutinib. Obviously, it's very interesting to see the Elevate TN studies and the obinutuzumab, as you noted. Um, I think pay, we, we always get asked, you know, whether there's a benefit of adding. And, I, and obviously, I think that m- many of us, not all of us, but many of us usually, if we're going to give chronic continuous therapy, might not always add a CD20 monoclonal antibody in this setting. Um, and certainly, I think, again, given COVID experience, that's something that you can plus or minus discuss with your patients. Sometimes I'll use it if I think somebody's got an immune-mediated needs, a quick turnaround in terms of uh, a cytopenia that is uh, more immune mediated and needs a, a quick response, and then uh, the BTK inhibitor can then, you know, sort of handle the rest of it. But Jen, do you add a lot of CD20 monoclonal antibodies with your BTK inhibitors? Yeah, I hardly ever do. And I mean, you're right. Like the open achizumab data is much more um, robust than what we saw with rituximab, and probably provides some benefit for some patients. Um, but I agree. I think if you're if the patient really wants that easy start continuous therapy, 
adding a CD20 antibody sort of negates the benefit of doing the BTK inhibitor in the first place. Um, so, you know, um, until we find that there are specific groups of patients that benefit from, from it the most, I really haven't been doing it. You know, the other, um, other thing I think would be helpful to discuss a little bit is we talked about how Nathan had unmutated IGHV. And I was just uh, wondering, Nicole, what is, what's your practice? Like, do you counsel patients differently, whether they have unmutated or mutated IGHV? You know, I mean, obviously, given the robust data that we have with the novel agents for, you know, whether they're unmutated or not, as you said, they've become much better players. And so, you know, I, you know, even though patients really focus on their prognostic markers and are very dismayed when they find out that they're unmutated, certainly this data suggests that they're going to do very well with BTK inhibitors. And so, you know, certainly, obviously, no chemoimmunotherapy for the unmutated is pretty much uh, standard for, for my practice. Um, but certainly, you know, obviously, the novel agents do really, really well. So, so I don't hesitate, you know, separating that. I tell them how well they're going to do on a BTK inhibitor, despite the fact that they're unmutated. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the longer term follow-up from CLL14, it seems like there might be um, a hint of difference for those IGHV mutated versus unmutated patients, where those that are mutated are the ones that are maintaining their remission over many years. Um, whereas we're seeing some relapses, you know, after a couple years off drug and the patients with unmutated IGHV. So um, I, I certainly don't hesitate to give those patients that regimen, but I think that's something I'm going to be looking really closely at when we see longer and longer term follow-up. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. I think we need a little bit more follow-up to see if that's going to be a shift in the way we sequence when we talk about what's the right agent to start first, if it makes a difference and what subgroups. Absolutely. So now let's take Nathan, same blood counts, adenopathy, and uh, characteristics about his CLL, but we're going to change things about him. So he has now hypertension that is poorly controlled. So all the same discussions we had before, but now poorly controlled hypertension. So when we think about that, Jennifer, what would, you know, what options, what might you consider a little differently now that you know that he has poorly controlled hypertension? Yeah, so we saw from the head-to-head -head study that hypertension is much more common with ibrutinib than acalabrutinib. Um, we've seen actually also in a number of um, retrospective studies that hypertension over time with ibrutinib is really, really common, probably upwards of 60 to 70% of patients either need an antihypertensive added if they're not on one before or need another one if they are already on an antihypertensive. Um, so in this patient, unless there were reasons why they couldn't do other things, um, I would lean towards acalabrutinib rather than ibrutinib. You certainly could also consider just doing venetoclax or venetuzumab because there is no safety signal with hypertension in those patients. Um, whereas with acalabrutinib, though much less than ibrutinib, you still do see some hypertension. I think that's really important. And of course, again, regardless of the BTK inhibitor that you choose, certainly to try to get their hypertension in good control regardless is important to work with their other physicians to do so. Um, so yeah, so a calibrutinib or venetoclaxobinutuzumab, I think, are, are great options for this patient. And again, the supporting data being the Elevate uh, relapse data as well as CLL14. Now, what happens, uh, so let's switch his comorbidities a little bit. So he has hypertension and he has a pre-existing history or history of atrial fibrillation. So when we look at that in that patient, uh, what what other options or what would you consider to sort of define an option better? 
Yeah. So again, um, while atrial fibrillation is less common with acalabrutinib or xanabrutinib than it is with ibrutinib, there is still a higher incidence of AFib and BTK inhibitor treated patients than in people who aren't treated with a BTK inhibitor. Um, so I think, you know, using a venetoclax-based regimen in this patient, all other things being equal probably uh, makes the most sense. Um, if the patient didn't want the infusional um, component with the obinutuzumab or didn't want to come for the ramp up, um, I think you could consider using um, acalabrutinib. It's important to note, though, that the risk is still present, though less than with ibrutinib. You know, I think with the uh, Elevate RR study, we saw about a 9% risk of AFib, and it was higher in patients who had a history of AFib before. Yeah, so really important, right? So you're you're giving, you're talking about the potential of, of, of the side effects of these medications and, and still working with your patients. Um, and certainly, you know, so even though, you know, characteristically we'll say you have a history of atrial fibrillation, let's move on to something like venetoclax. Certainly it could be more dicey. The patient may have some renal insufficiency or like Jennifer noted, not want to come in for, you know, the intravenous infusions. And then you're looking at maybe a second generation, but you're still going to tell your patient you're still, there's still a potential risk of atrial fibrillation in that scenario. So, um, and again, this data supported here by the CLL-14. And then now let's talk about a younger, well, I guess if he was younger, I guess we moved away from Nathan being 73. If he was 56 years of age, and when we talk about uh, options of therapy, if he preferred something was once daily dosing, um, you know, uh, sort of more simplified treatment, um, I think it's a little easier. Jennifer, what would you say here? Yeah, so I, th I think the answer here is pretty clear. You know, ibrutinib is once daily versus acalabrutinib being twice daily. And, you know, I actually, I don't know about you, Nicole, but I think this is kind of an important thing to talk to patients about at the outset is like the expectation that they have to take the pill twice a day if they're going to use a calibrutinib. And if they really don't think that that's something that they can manage, those patients should probably be on ibrutinib rather than acalabrutinib. Um, we talked a lot earlier about what is better about the second generation BTK inhibitors, but we didn't spend um, any time talking about what might be better with ibrutinib. So certainly once daily dosing um, is nice with that drug. Um, the other thing is the proton pump inhibitor uh, um, contraindication with acalabrutinib. And then to, even if it's not a PPI, if they're on an H2 blocker, it has to be spaced out from the drug, which can be difficult with a, a twice daily drug. You know, the patients are having to set a lot of alarms on their um, phones in my experience in order to get those drugs in effectively. Um, so that's another place where either ibrutinib or xanabrutinib might be a good option. But are there yeah, any other um, places where you like to use ibrutinib? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good uh, discussion point. Uh, we forget about the, the proton pump inhibitors or the other drug-drug interactions. And it's always important to, to go over all the medications of your patients. Um, and certainly, obviously, a lot of the specialty pharmacies have a lot of pharmacists that help counsel as well. Um, but it's always important because this comes up quite a bit. And so once daily dosing is a big deal for many patients and may choose to do so, or the spacing out bit, depending upon if they're on a proton pump inhibitor. So absolutely, you can see preferences come out. And that's where oftentimes, um, absolutely preferentially, some of my patients will easily go back, go on a brutinib versus twice daily dosing with a calibrutinib. So here, um, here again, some of that data being supported by ECOG-1912. And then we'll go to another case. 
All right, so uh, we're gonna keep the same disease categories and keep the comorbid hypertension. Um, and now Nathan does go on single agent ibrutinib. Um, he has a response and things are going really well. And then after four months, he develops an episode of AFib. Um, so I think this is a huge question in clinical practice. Do you continue the ibrutinib? Do you dose reduce? Do you come off that medication entirely? Yeah. So, I mean, this is tricky because obviously it, it comes up common enough that we're learning how to co-manage um, atrial fibrillation along with the BTK inhibitors. And certainly, I think that certainly, I think this the reason why this is an important question is because I think a lot of folks automatically think that they're going to have to abandon BTK inhibitors altogether. And that's not necessarily the case. So I think it's important. Typically, I would usually stop the abrutinib um, get the atrial fibrillation under management, talk to the patient, of course, about this um, in, in terms of whether or not uh, they would be willing to be rechallenged with a BTK inhibitor and oftentimes switch them to a second generation BTK inhibitor in this case. Um, I, I don't find that dose reduction necessarily helps. Um, so I'm, alter I'm usually switching. If a patient, of course, tells me that because they've never been on any medicines whatsoever and don't want to deal with being on cardiac medicines or the potential of that happening again, then, then, I'll, uh, then we'll, we'll discuss switching over usually to venetoclax-based therapy. But oftentimes I'm gonna try to see if we can still maximize depending upon how they are. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and as you showed earlier, you know, with both acalabrutinib and now xanabrutinib too, we have a lot of data for patients who are intolerant of ibrutinib for one reason or another. And AFib is one of those reasons that comes up a lot. And many of those patients, actually most of those patients who go on to a second generation HIPAA actually don't have uh, uh, the same toxicity occur again. Um, I think you know, before we had the second generation inhibitors widely available, we always used to just continue the ibrutinib at the same dose or dose reduce sometimes, manage the atrial fibrillation and continue on. And that's because those patients just really didn't have any other options at that time. But I think we're really lucky now that we do have these second generation inhibitors. Um, you know, one of the studies that we had uh, done at Ohio State retrospectively is to look at ventricular arrhythmias with ibrutinib um, and try to see if we could find some um, predisposing factors in the patients. And the only thing that ever came out was patients who had previous AFib were more likely to have subsequent ventricular arrhythmias. Um, so that's something that's really stuck with me. And one of the reasons why I almost always will just switch them to acalabrutinib if they um, have AFib on ibrutinib. Yeah, fair enough. So I think it's important to note that you, you can still try to use these agents um, in, in somebody to maximize the class because they're such a, an effective treatment for our patients with CLL. But obviously it's still in discussion because there are, you know, many patients, if they've already on hypertensive medications, um, and, uh, you know, don't have a problem having the cardiologist tweak their medicines and, and be treated and be switched over to a second generation. Some of my younger folks who have never had this and then go back to a normal sinus rhythm are a little bit more on edge about, you know, going back to a BTK inhibitor because they really don't want to be on these extra medications. So sometimes that's a challenge. And then I might switch them over to venetoclax. I'm sure you find something similar. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think 
we think of AFib as just, you know, a toxicity like any other, but I, I think it's so different than any of the other toxicities we encounter on um, the BTK inhibitors because it comes with a whole slew of other medications and other issues. So like now the patient has to follow with a cardiologist too. Now they have to be on a blood thinner. Now they have to be on, um, you know, either a rage or rhythm control agent. And um, I'm not sure about your experiences, uh, but ours are even if you, the patient is back in normal sinus rhythm is on a different medication. A lot of times they have to stay on those medications. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's not just a toxicity that's at the time point it occurs. It's something that, you know, the lasting effects will continue on. Yeah, agreed. So I think that, and it, as you said earlier, when a brutinib was the only agent we had to salvage patients who are multiply relapsed from chemoimmunotherapy, we co-managed and, and of course we did so to stay on and so did the patients and that, they, you know, at that, they weren't minding because they realized the severity of their disease and the little options they might have had subsequent to that. So, but now there are, there are other options, um, but again, great class of drugs. And since we're thinking long-term about going from one agent to another agent to another agent, for many of our CL patients who might experience more than one therapy during their lifetime, it's great that we have some choices that we can choose from depending upon. So here's our recommendation would be sequencing to a second generation inhibitor based upon the, the current evidence. Um, and as well, you know, now we have evidence, we already talked about um, patients being treated with acalabrutinib or xenobrutinib in the BTK inhibitor intolerance setting. Um, we also have that data that you showed earlier, Nicole, with pertubrutinib in BTK inhibitor intolerant patients on the Bruin study, um, showing that with those that selective reversible BTK inhibitor, most patients can go on and tolerate a BTK inhibitor class just fine if they're given pertubrutinib rather than ibrutinib. Okay, so for the case five, which is our last case, so let's talk about um, now, Nathan. Um, so he initiated therapy with fixed duration venetoclaxobinutuzumab, and he's responded well. He had some grade three neutropenia during his therapy, and remember, fixed duration in the frontline setting with CLL14 was 12 months of therapy in duration, as opposed to the Murano and relapse, which is 24 months. So he completed therapy and he's been monitored off therapy. And then he's noted to develop some progressive disease after two years off therapy. So when we consider options for therapy for him, um, you know, after relapsing after venetoclaxobinutuzumab, we have to consider what we're gonna do next. And does his experience of neutropenia cater at all? You know, does it influence or, or change your subsequent therapeutic choices after this. Jennifer, what would you say to this? Yeah, so this is a um, scenario where we don't have a lot of data right now for a really good reason, and that's that we have seen very few patients relapse after frontline venetoclaxobinutuzumab. Um, most of the data that we actually have right now in the prospective setting comes from the Murano study, which you showed earlier, um, where we saw the patients after the two-year regimen of venetoclax rituximab, when they were re-challenged or when they were challenged for the BTK inhibitor at the time of progression, had very high response rates um, in prolonged remission durations, as far as we can tell. This was also seen in a retrospective study too. So, um, you know, in this patient who experiences progressive disease after two years, so that's one year on therapy and one year off therapy, I probably wouldn't do venetoclaxobinutuzumab again, just given the short remission duration. So I think switching to a BTK inhibitor is absolutely the right thing to do in this setting. Either ibrutinib or calibrutinib would be um, great options, just kind of depending on comorbidities, patient preference, things like that. 
Um, and another question is whether the neutropenia on venetoclax makes any difference for how we're going to choose our next therapy. And, you know, as you've experienced as well, venetoclax is really common with I'm sorry, neutropenia is very common with venetoclax, especially during the ramp up, but in some patients persisting after that. Um, and that's a, a toxicity that's pretty uh, unique to venetoclax. And I don't know of any data that would suggest cross reactivity with the BTK inhibitors. So I would probably go into it, not even worrying about the grade three neutropenia from the previous um, treatment. Any different thoughts from you? No, I'm in agreement. I guess the question I have, although it's again, extrapolating from the Murano data, would be what would you feel comfortable when after progressive disease um, from venetoclax-based regimen, given the data that we do have that you'd feel comfortable re-challenging? You said a year was too short. Uh, what about two years? Or would you, you know, how long would you consider uh, acceptable to re-challenge with either ven monotherapy or ven-based therapy again? Yeah, great question. I'm um, interested in your thoughts as well. I, you know, I think after the one-year um, therapy, a treatment-free interval of at least two years is probably what the shortest I would take is a, a time to rechallenge. And it depends a little bit too on how they did with the venetoclax therapy. If the venetoclax was really well tolerated for them and they had two treatment-free years and then needed additional treatment, I might do venetoclax again, knowing that your remission is going to be shorter. But if they had any trouble with the venetoclax, um, I would probably do a BTK inhibitor then just because, you know, you know, if they had uh, two treatment for years before, I think the chances of even getting one treatment free interval uh, next time is pretty low. And then maybe a stickier question. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Absolutely. Um, and I think we just need more data. But the Murano data was just so impressive, right? I mean, just if you think about the patients, it was two years in duration, so I understand that's different, but they were pretreated, although only I think one median prior line of therapy in that study compared to some other studies. But with that being said, you know, there, if you think about the median uh, time, you know, to the evidence of progressive disease, but not needing treatment was about two years and then another two years that they might need treatment. So patients can buy four plus years off of therapy, you know, from the data that we saw with Murano, we now have pretty mature data at five years. What do you think about the, the upfront CLL 14 data? Um, yeah, I mean, in I, terms I think... of, yeah, oh, go, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, in terms of, you know, durability in that sense. So, you know, should we be expecting a longer response duration than, than what we're seeing, you know, with the Murano study, for example? Yeah, I think that's a great question because, I mean, right now we're at four years of follow-up and 74% of patients still in remission. So it's probably going to be, I mean, I'm, my guess is that it's going to have a fairly similar median duration of remission to what we're seeing with the BTK inhibitors, again, with one year of treatment and then the rest treatment-free. And then an additional, you know, potentially a year or two before they actually need treatment for their disease. Um, so yeah, I think especially for those patients with good risk CLL, it's pretty tempting, you know, as long as they're willing to do the infusions to do the venetoclax open up front. What do you think? Yeah, no. So I think it's really nice to see, albeit obviously a little bit in more immature data. I think it's going to be really nice to follow. And as you noted uh, earlier with the patients who are unmutated, um, you know, whether or not those curves wind up superimposing again, or we're going to see sort of a, a, a quicker relapse, a shorter response duration and need to alternative therapies in those individuals. So very interesting, nice to have another agent that we can use for our CLL patients. So, yeah, so very good. One other thing I think is going to be super helpful to see in the long-term follow-up is, you know, 
is whether the sequence matters. So right now, I think all we can say is that, you know, either sequence is effective um, and we don't know which one is better. I mean, we know that that BTK inhibitors are more effective when given in earlier lines of therapy. And, you know, whether the magic number there is one or less or two or less, it's a little bit hard to tell. And venetoclax, we just don't have quite as much data. You would expect that that's going to be true as well. Um, but I think it's going to be really helpful in the follow-up of some of these uh, big frontline studies to see what patients are getting next and how long of remission durations they get. Because, you know, if, when we wait to do an actual sequential study, it's going to take 10 years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely true. And again, I think certain this, despite um, some of the data that will eventually mature over time, of course, in, in part, this is still going to be dependent on some of your patients' comorbidities and issues that they might have in choosing an agent or being the circumstances of, you know, what's going on with COVID. Or, so, so certainly those will influence in your decision regardless because these therapies are so effective. So we're, we're very fortunate. Okay, so let's get... So again, a uh, patient is BTK naive, so sequencing to a BTK inhibitor, a very optimal choice, although we talked about the fact that you could potentially re-challenge with venetoclax depending upon the time off of therapy. Too short, probably not. Many of us favor switching altogether to a BTK inhibitor, but maybe a longer uh, disease remission off therapy, a longer time off therapy, many of us would be uh, encouraged to re-challenge with a venetoclax-based regimen. And so some of the supporting data, yes, I agree with Jennifer here. I don't think the neutropenia should impact his subsequent line of therapy with a BTK inhibitor. Very common uh, to see neutropenia with venetoclax-based regimens. And so we just support patients. Sometimes you have to hold or dose reduce or growth factor support, but this wouldn't, I think none of us would uh, worry or be concerned about doing a subsequent therapy with a BTK inhibitor in that circumstance. Uh, and then clearly you can see here that uh, some of the data that we've amassed over time indicates that using BTK inhibitors post-VEN in BTK-naive patients is effective. We've shown that data. Um, again, if somebody is BTK-resistant, uh, I think that data, obviously, uh, patients don't do as well to re-challenge them with a BTK inhibitor. So just some final take-homes from the case discussion that we had regarding Nathan. Obviously, for many patients, either a BTK inhibitor or venetoclax-based regimens are excellent choices. That sequencing data that Jennifer was talking about, hopefully we'll get that over time. Is there something that preferentially, should it be a BTK versus Ven first, or is it patient-specific depending upon um, whether they're high risk? And so certainly we'll amass that data over time. Obviously, many of us feel that the TP53 abnormalities, we'd favor the use of the BTK inhibitor given the data that we currently have, although we'll see over time how that matures as well. Um, and then again, when choosing among the many available BTK inhibitors and more to come, as, as we've discussed with Xanabrutinib and non-covalent BTK inhibitors as well, you're going to consider the comorbidities, the adverse event profile, what your patients have, a concomitant uh, drug administration uh, as well. Um, intolerance to one BTK inhibitor does not preclude use of a subsequent BTK inhibitor. So I think we showed some really nice data that you can go from one drug to another to try to obviously maximize the use of BTK inhibitors as a class overall. 
Um, and then again, we've shown some data uh, with the, the evidence supporting use of BTK inhibitors followed by ven-based therapy or vice versa. So I think we're having more mature data that if they start with venetoclax-based regimen, that certainly you can go on to use a BTK inhibitor subsequently and vice versa, giving the mature data that we have with BTK inhibitors in frontline therapy. So what's next for BTK inhibitors and CLL? Obviously, many of us, there's data which we didn't dive into, so we apologize given the time period, but obviously looking at um, oral-oral combinations. So Captivate uh, and the GLOW studies looking at abrutinib and venetoclax, and you'll see uh, calabrutinib and venetoclax studies, but obviously high rates of remission uh, uh, an MRD negativity, a change with oral-oral combination, and obviously the advantage being fixed duration to oral agents. So we wait for obviously longer follow-up and data regarding some of these studies. And now there's also triplets as well. So looking at a BTK inhibitor plus um, a CD20 monoclonal antibody such as obinutuzumab and venetoclax. So you have a calabrutinib and xanabrutinib-based studies, again, very um, with high responses. So we're looking to longer follow up with some of the novel triplets. And then, of course, we're talking about uh, some of the early data with the non-covalent BTK inhibitors, such as pertubrutinib and others that are coming down the pike that for patients developing some of the BTK C481S mutations and others, these will be a potential option, again, to salvage our patients. We know we can use venetoclax. Hopefully, we'll be able to go on to use these agents as well. And so we'll see how that fits into sequencing. So we received several questions um, that we're going to try to go through as many as we can in the time that we have allotted. And maybe I'm sure Jennifer and I will probably digress and talk about other topics along <laughs> the way that go along with these as we all think of questions that go along with some of these topics. but. Um, since COVID has been a big issue, obviously, for everybody um, in the last year and a half, and now we have a new Delta variant, at, well, not that new, and now we're dealing with newer variants that are coming along as well. Um, I guess one of the questions that came was, are you reinstating any COVID-19 protocols that you had in place earlier favoring oral versus IV agents? Jen, you want to comment? We, I'm sure we both can comment. Yeah, so I guess I would start by saying I don't know that we actually backed down on a lot of the COVID changes we made, because even with the case numbers low and even with the vaccines, we know, unfortunately, our CLL patients don't respond as well to the vaccines as people without CLL. And the patients who were on any type of treatment had very low antibody production um, uh, after COVID vaccination. So um, though the Delta variant certainly heightens some of the awareness, um, you know, I, I've been favoring oral agents for the most part. Um, there also is a lot of uh, observational level data see, that looks like patients treated with BTK inhibitors may be doing better with COVID than CLO patients that aren't being treated with BTK inhibitors. And you know, some speculation that um, the anti-inflammatory effects might be beneficial. Um, you know, I, certainly I, I wouldn't mandate that a patient choose the BTK inhibitor um, or a, over venetoclax obinutuzumab. But I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things to consider um, during the COVID-19 times. What it, what's been your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think part of this for sure, I think um, regionally, depending upon the circumstances in your area, you might be, you know, backing down or off of your intravenous agents, depending upon what's going on 
Uh, I'm in New York, actually, and, and right now things at the hospital level have been very good so far. But we're anticipating that obviously things will get worse. I mean, uh, the fortunate thing is that most of the patients that we have currently in the hospital haven't been vaccinated and, and are not um, the folks who have been vaccinated. But we know, as Jennifer noted, that our CLL patients certainly do not mount the robust antibody response. And that's something we're going to be learning over time. I would encourage all your patients to get vaccinated. I would encourage them to get their booster. And then there are clinical trials that are ongoing to look at um, patients with CLO or other immunocompromised uh, immune uh, conditions in terms of how to support them better uh, and what things to use. Um, I think it's also important to note that the Regeneron antibody cocktail is available for patients. And so it's something that we've been doing. Jennifer, I'm sure you probably have as well. So for patients, if they have um, uh, obviously have COVID and, um, you know, are diagnosed and within a certain time period, it's an infusion that they can get that's about an hour. And certainly we do encourage our patients to come in and, and get that infusion as well, hoping that we decrease the severity of their illness and keep them out of the hospital. So I think that's important. So um, I think that many, you know, if patients are on venetoclax and they're getting a monoclonal antibody, many of us have held the monoclonal antibody but continue their venetoclax. So it's not that I'm preferentially switching people, as Jen noted, to a BTK inhibitor because of that. Um, but certainly when you're talking about new, start introducing new treatment options for patients, this is what Jennifer was referring to, many of us might, you know, say this, this is what we have currently with our data, although obviously there's a lot we still don't know yet. I think that's fair, right? Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, do you think, and, and we'll talk about triplets in a variety of different ways. I'll, I'll start off with at the top of the questions. Do you think that triplets might be potentially curative in the frontline setting? Um, and what about the toxicities that are associated with the triplets? I think, you know, that is it's such an interesting question. And I don't think anybody knows the answer right now. It's so tempting to think that there may be a subset of patients who are going to either be cured of their disease or functionally cured. I mean, if they're um, older and we give them a 15 year remission duration, if these work really great, um, there may be patients who don't ever need to think of their disease again. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's just really too early to say. Um, I think our uh, study at OSU, which was ibrutinib, venetoclax, obinutuzumab has the longest follow-up. Um, this was published by uh, Carrie Rogers earlier this year. Um, and at three years, median follow-up after completion of a year of therapy, um, actually no patient in the frontline setting had relapsed um, out of 25 and two patients in the relapsed refractory um, uh, group. Now, again, it's a very small study, but I, you know, I think that it is encouraging that there are some patients who are, are getting very long remission durations after this. What about you? Do you think any of these patients are cured? No, I think it's fair. When we look at the different, um, when we look at our more favorable patient characteristics and how well they did with chemo immunotherapy or certain treatment options, I think that for sure that um, obviously very effective treatments combined together may give those individuals a much, you know, a longer uh, time off of therapy and potentially curative, just as you said. Now, whether or not um, all patients need triplet combinations is, you know, you know whether they need that. And and there there obviously is increased toxicity, albeit you're truncating therapy, right? So you're giving it to them for a shorter period of time. So if you can get them through that therapy, 
um, you know, certainly it has its benefits. And this is no different when we look at venetoclaxobinutuzumab, right? Much more labor intensive upfront. Um, but if you if you get them through that year off therapy, again, to, to, then they go back on monitoring. So there's no doubt that there's some increased toxicities when you combine doublets, triplets together, but the added benefit, um, and hopefully we'll see more mature data over time where that might be more to which patients that might be more beneficial. So I think you're right, only time will tell. Um, now, what about MRD status? I guess we, we didn't really talk a lot about MRD. Um, uh, you know, our, first of all, obviously that's been more championed with venetoclax-based regimens, but certainly can we use that in BTK-based therapy or can we look at that? You know, obviously Abrutna being the first to market and as a chronic continuous therapy, um, we've seen data, right, from the Resonate 2 data, the more mature data that more patients are getting complete remissions the longer they're on therapy. Could some of those patients be MRD negative now? You know, so what do you think about that, Jennifer? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's going to be a long time before we have any data to justify that approach, just because, especially when you're talking about a single agent BTK inhibitor, so few patients become MRD negative, even if you follow them for long periods of time, even if their counts are perfect, a lot of times on flow, especially if you do it in the bone marrow um, or clonoseek, you're likely to see some residual disease. Now, I don't think though that that means that you can't successfully stop a BTK inhibitor in anybody. Um, you know, we know from the ECOG um, study of ibrutinib rituximab versus FCR. So they looked at patients who came off of the ibrutinib therapy for reasons other than progression and found a median of two years to progression off therapy. Um, we looked at that as well in Alliance and found that it was particularly dependent on how long they were on treatment before. Um, but if you had people who were on treatment for you know longer than a year, they could get really long remission durations um, without any treatment. And I think that you know the same is likely true if you have somebody who's on treatment for five years and has an MRD negative complete response. Probably if you stop it, you can go a number of years before restarting it. And probably if they have disease that comes back, you could start a BTK inhibitor at that point again. Um, certainly completely data free, but it probably would work. <laughs> have you ever done that in your practice? Yeah, I mean, there are many of my patients, particularly my younger patients, right, who, you know, prior to, to venetoclax being available. Um, you know, are going, well, can we do this now, you know, with the BTK inhibitors, can I stop therapy? And certainly we have that discussion um, and a treatment evaluation to see where they are at. And, and I guess that brings up the bigger question about MRD in general, even with venetoclax. So if you have somebody who's gotten CLL-14 upfront or Murano in relapse and still has MRD, but are in a complete remission, are you still so stopping their therapy? So I do now just because you know, there are some studies that are looking at that um, um, that may or may not completely answer the question. But I think right now, you know, with the venetoclax-based regimens, we don't have a lot of data to say that like continuing on therapy, that you get a lot more bang for your buck if you like did another six months or a year of venetoclax. Certainly some people do it. And I don't think that that's the wrong thing to do. I just, I think again, we just don't have a lot of data to, to say how much benefit you get from that. Yeah, it would be nice. I mean, as you noted, with the studies you just talked about with regards to abrutinib, that, that some individuals who came off for different reasons, still their response lasted over time. And so it's not to say that we couldn't do this with BTK inhibitor-based therapy. Like you said, it's just that we, have all, we don't have the data that, you know, that we do in the venetoclax 
uh, in the venetoclax trials. But certainly, I think that many of our patients would like that kind of data because they might be able to stop therapy and go many years for being rechallenged uh, where they have progressive disease and need a new agent. And whether that be they switch to venetoclax or similar to what we're doing with uh, the venetoclax, can we go back and rechallenge them on a BTK inhibitor? And so certainly, I think that's obviously very possible. And you guys probably are looking into this as well, but one of the um, things we've been interested in from a trial perspective is, um, you know, can you add something to a BTK inhibitor at a later time point and get those patients who have partial responses or MRD positive um, responses and actually drive them into an undetectable MRD and then, uh, then stop therapy. To me, that's a really appealing way to do it because you have, you know, something you you know that what you're doing might help and you have something tangible to measure. But again, you know, certainly that's clinical trial. Um, Absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, And then I guess, I think we've answered this earlier, but I think we'll just readdress this. Um, What is your preferred BTK inhibitor in older populations with two or three or more comorbidities? Um, So for in the absence of a clinical trial, because um, I think either one of the, either ibrutinib or calibrutinib is certainly an appropriate therapy. Um, and if a clinical trial was used in one or the other, I'd have no hesitation to do that. But in the absence of a trial, I would choose a calibrutinib for older older patients, especially those with comorbidities, um, just because of the better tolerability overall. And uh, specifically, we know that AFib is a higher risk in older patients. Um, so for those people, I think that you know, the risk of AFib gets progressively higher the longer they're on drug. Um, and, and I would choose a calibrutinib. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the patients who are, have been on a brutinib and tolerating it well, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't consider even switching them yeah, over. Um, but certainly for, for patients who have more than one comorbidity, it, particularly if they have cardiac issues, I'm generally switching them to a second generation. And then I guess that segues into one of the questions as well. Uh, so if you now, if Xanabrutinib gets approved soon for CLL, how do you choose between the two second generation BTK inhibitors, a calibrutinib versus Xanabrutinib? I think that's such a good question. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of experience with Xanabrutinib just because most of the um, trials that have been done so far were done outside the United States. So I think there's not a... An, uh, a lot of the trials that were done in the United States and the approvals are in diseases other than CLL. Um, so I've only used it a few times, but I had good experiences and I don't know which one I would choose to be honest. Um, I think, you know, certainly with the patients who like have a proton pump inhibitor or other contraindications to a calibrutinib, then it's an easy choice for xanabrutinib. Uh, so far the data looks like there might be a little bit lower risk of AFib, even with the xanabrutinib than acalabrutinib. Although that alpine data suggests that maybe the hypertension risk with xanabrutinib is a little bit higher. So it's all, it's a little bit confusing. Um, I'll probably stick with acalabrutinib initially just because I have used it more, but um, I think xanabrutinib is a great drug too. How about you? I think that's totally fair. I, I do have some of the Xanabrutinib studies in CLL, and so I have, um, although less experience compared to the, the other BTK inhibitors, but certainly the patients on Xanabrutinib are doing extremely well as well. I think it's more difficult when you're trying to split hairs and choose between them until we see more mature data. Obviously, the data that you presented with the head-to-head data for the Brutinib and Xanabrutinib Acalibr- uh, will be nice to see is that overall response, is that going to translate into something over time or not? Um, that'll be persistent. Um, but, it, but obviously, when you're talking about the adverse events, both had a really nice decrease in the frequency of those events. And so I, I would have no hesitancy using either. But if they have a PPI, I think it's easy to select for things like that. Or if they're a drug 
drug interactions for sure. Um, okay, and then I think, again, just to, to go over, given the Elevate data, are you adding obinutuzumab to a calibrated? I think we answered this pretty succinctly. I think many of us are thinking chronic continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy. Um, many of us are not necessarily, I am not adding uh, obinutuzumab to a calibrutinib at this point in time. That sort of, in my head, as Jennifer had noted earlier, sort of defeats the purpose if I'm thinking chronic continuous therapy, uh, unless there's a specific reason that I might want to add it. As I said, maybe somebody's got ITP and their platelets are 20 and I'm nervous about starting the BTA. I might front load them a little bit with an antibody and then get their counts up and add the BTK inhibitor. Um, but other than that, I, I think I'd like, I'd like the data from Elevate-TN is, is uh, very nice. And I think I'm just going to want more follow-up to see whether or not it translates into something that's significant over time for our patients to do that. Um, otherwise, I, I'm continuing BTK monotherapy. What do you think, Jennifer? I think that's pretty yep, completely agree. And then arthralgias. I don't know, Jennifer. <laughs> I always find that a challenge, unless it's such, it's such short-lived in the beginning and then I don't have to deal with it. But, but yeah. there are patients who develop it later where it really is a challenge. Do you have any tips for how to, how to deal with that? I agree. To me, that that is the most challenging side effect with ibrutinib. Um, you know, the couple of things that I hear from patients a lot is like hydration really makes a difference. And people who hydrate more tend to have less arthralgias. Um, some people swear by some of those things like mustard or pickle juice, though. Um, it's hard to really have a clinical trial uh, seeing whether those are effective. The other thing that does help is steroids. Um, cause I think there probably is some like immune component to this, um, the arthralgias people get. Um, so I will usually do like 20 milligrams of prednisone for a week and then step it down to 10 milligrams of prednisone and then try to, to come off of it. Um, with some patients that has worked beautifully and they've never had arthralgias again with the VTK inhibitor. Sometimes it works for a while and then comes back. And, um, you know, in some cases I am switching from my brutinib to a calibrutinib or xanabrutinib for arthralgias. How about yeah, you? Do you have any, any other tricks? I think, no, I think that's exactly the case I've tried. Uh, yeah. For some of them, I think these anecdotal things and steroids do work, um, and then, but the others that no matter what you do, it doesn't. And then here's the perfect scenario of, of me switching to a second generation mm -hmm. and trying um, if, if they're, despite what we did, it, you know, persists um, or it comes back, you know, once they're tapered off steroids, um, I'll try to switch them and see. And, and for some of them that has worked beautifully and others, unfortunately, you know, I've had to switch therapy, unfortunately, but that's much more of a challenge, I think for sure. Um, and then, um, let's see, when would you retreat with BTKs versus switching to a BCL2 inhibitor? And I think we kind of said that scenario. So if somebody has an intolerance a lot, you know, many, both Jennifer and I really advocated for switching to a second generation BTK inhibitor to try to maximize the efficacy, particularly if they're responding so well to a BTK inhibitor. But certainly if the adverse event, despite switching, isn't working, or if they're resistant, now, maybe we can switch the question a little bit. We can ad lib here. So Jennifer, what if they develop resistance on a BTK inhibitor, but their counts are otherwise, it's sort of slow progression. So the, you know, maybe their white counts going up or, but their counts are otherwise fine. They're completely asymptomatic, or maybe you have some small little return of lymphadenopathy. Mm -hmm. um, so this happens all the time. And I think it, it's, 
really challenging because everybody's a little bit different in how long it's going to take them to really clinically progress. Um, the one caution I would say though, is most times people will slow, 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 and then very quickly progress at some point. So you don't want to miss that window and actually get to the point where they're having very symptomatic progression. So usually, you know, I'll watch somebody's white count for a few months, um, maybe even six to 12 months, if that's the only thing that's changing and it's not going very high. Um, once I start to see some residual or new lymphadenopathy on exam for sure, uh, or CT scans, if we're really starting to see things get larger, I will, I switch at that point. And I think it's probably important to note just in case um, anybody is not aware of this, you cannot switch from one BTK inhibitor to another in the case of resistance, because the resist that all of the covalent BTK inhibitors, ibrutinib, calibrutinib, xanabrutinib have the exact same mechanism. So if somebody's resistant to one, they're resistant to all those. And if you want to keep with the BTK inhibitor class, you really have to switch to the non-covalent ones like pertubrutinib. Yep. So that's a good example of that. Um, and I think when people ask about sequencing, although obviously they're not yet approved, that might be another option, right? To switch to from a, a covalent to a non-covalent BTK inhibitor in that setting. Now, Jennifer, with that, uh, would you, just so, so, so people know, would you stop though, because they're developing some evidence of their white count, let's say, like you said, you'll, you'll monitor, but you keep people on their therapy. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that that's like, uh, that it's really tempting to want to stop therapy because you think it's not helping, but all you always want to stay on the BTK inhibitor until you switch to something different if somebody is progressing. And that's what I just wanted to make sure that that take home point was there because, because obviously not all of their cells are resistant. So they were still benefiting from the agent that they're on, albeit, you know, that some of the, some of the cells are developing resistance. And so you might see that white count going up, but the majority, we would keep our patients on the therapy until you're ready to switch them to an alternative therapy at that point. So one final question before we close. Um, so certainly can we, is there evidence to suggest that venetoclax can resensitize patients to BTK inhibitors after earlier progression on a BTK inhibitor? So, you know, what we know for sure is that if somebody has a C41S mutation and then you switch them to venetoclax, um, when their disease comes back on venetoclax, they almost always will still have that mutation present. Um, so I think it's unlikely that you're going to be able to to resensitize somebody fully to a BTK inhibitor after venetoclax. I don't know what happens in people who don't have a mutation, whether there may be resensitization for some patients. Um, one thing that has been seen anecdotally though, is occasionally if you have somebody who's relapsing on venetoclax after having been on a BTK inhibitor, you sometimes can add the ibrutinib back into the venetoclax to get at least a short-term remission while you're kind of thinking of your next step. Yeah, I think this is important to note, uh, although albeit really immature data, there might be, um, and obviously for these patients, you know, who have relapsed on a BTK inhibitor and now also relapsing on venetoclax, you're, you're, whether you're adding it in and, and trying to get some a little bit additive effect, you're going to be thinking of an alternative strategy for these patients because the response duration probably won't be so long. So then you're looking at cellular therapies or other clinical trials or novel therapies for these individuals, depending upon their comorbidities and circumstances, because obviously having progression for both BTK and VEN is, is challenging in our patients. So I, I think that's pretty fair to, to say, right, Jennifer? Yep, I agree. Okay. So finishing up, just to summarize, and that was awesome. The, the questions were excellent. Jennifer, thank you so much for doing this with me. Always a pleasure um, to talk with you. 
Thank you and good day. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash QZB860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca.